Waves in the Finiverse. We don't have enforceable financial incentives and mechanisms, and we don't have sufficient cooperation across all levels of society. So you would think an intelligent species, Homo sapiens, would have figured out that we have to use water within the bounds of the hydrological cycle, but we don't. The policies that are implemented, the existing carbon markets, cap and trade, taxes, carbon credits and so on, they do help. I'm not cynical about them. I think they're necessary. However, they've shown to be relatively incremental. Welcome to Waves in the Finiverse. I'm Walter Jennings, the host of a podcast brought to you by Finiverse. We're talking with the wave makers that are creating ripples, waves, and tsunamis across finance, crypto, fintech, Web3, and beyond. Listen weekly to hear the change makers talk firsthand about their experiences in this dynamic industry. Today in the Finiverse, we're going to look at one of the largest challenges facing humankind at the moment. This is bigger than COVID and crypto winters. We're looking at climate change and what can be done to effectively address the challenges. Dr. Delton Chen is the founder of the Global Carbon Reward Initiative. He is a qualified civil engineer and geohydrologist with over 20 years experience in groundwater management, environmental impact assessment, geothermal energy, and climate mitigation. His initiative, the Global Carbon Rewards Scheme, is actually featured by Kim Stanley Robinson in his best-selling novel, Ministry of the Future. Let's hear more how blockchain can help with the global climate crisis. Welcome to the Finiverse, Dr. Delton Chen. Delton, the 2015 Paris agreements aim to cap global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, yet seven years later, the climate is still warming up. Has the Paris agreement been a success or a failure? It has potential to be a success, but in my mind, it has so far been a failure. And the reason is we don't have enforceable financial incentives and mechanisms, and we don't have sufficient cooperation across all levels of society to attempt one and a half degrees because it's such a big transition for industrial civilization. The traditional carbon markets have tried to solve the crisis. Uh, Why haven't they been as effective? Well, The traditional carbon markets, we might call them traditional, but they're quite new still. I would say they're traditional because they're based on standard economics. And standard economics has a particular theory about externalities and how to price them. Uh, My opinion is that those theories can work for most market failures, but not for this one. My opinion, this is a very special market failure that is much more structural and would require new thinking, new economics, and new policy. The policies that are implemented, the existing carbon markets, cap and trade, taxes, carbon credits, and so on, they do help. I'm not cynical about them. I think they're necessary. However, they've shown to be relatively incremental. Right. So the idea of paying to offset your carbon isn't the um, incentive enough for uh, the majority of industries and corporations to take it up? Let's start with the carbon tax, because that's really where the economists 
start with standard economics. The carbon tax is there to price emissions. The idea being we are experiencing a market failure. The damages are called the negative externality. And economists have the idea of pricing, putting a price on the negative externality as a social cost of carbon, call it what you want, but it's you know, somewhere around fifty to one hundred and fifty or two hundred dollars a ton, depending how it's it's uh, calculated, estimated. And the idea is to apply a global carbon tax at that level to internalize this negative externality and reduce emissions, and allow the whole world economy to be more efficient. Why doesn't it work? Well, because so many sectors and industries and people don't want the tax or don't want to be taxed too much. And so there's political vulnerability for those policies, particularly when the fossil fuel industry steps in because they have a lot of lobbying power. And then you have the fossil fuel exporting nations like the Gulf nations, which are dependent on uh, fossil fuels anyway. So they're probably not going to like a tax on it. But then uh, you raise the question about carbon offsetting. We're not carbon offsetting or should we offset our emissions personally, that type of thing. Well, yeah, it could help, but because we're unable to scale it up to the level that's needed, it's probably going to be insufficient. Do you um, offset your trips? I mean, you're uh, heading uh, from here to the Hong Kong airport. Um, I have rarely chosen to offset my own trips. Uh, well, well, Walter, before this uh, conversation, you said you weren't going to do a gotcha, right? <laughs> but that's a gotcha, isn't it? Now everyone's going to know. Uh, the truth is, actually, I don't bother offsetting my emissions, my flights. Uh, is that a sin? Probably. But um, the reason is I, I had a conscious decision before I started this uh, work that I would work on something that would be globally impactful. Yeah. And offsetting my own personal emissions, whether I'm flying or not, isn't really going to be that impactful. Well, you mentioned the idea of looking at a global solution, and it does appear that carbon offsets have largely been regional or within specific nations. Uh, you know, how do we get to a, a global solution? And I will ask you about your own reward system, but you know, the I guess the question is: Do you see that regionalization versus a global so- approach? Well, I, there's two major options with negative pricing on emissions. One is a tax, and the other is emissions trading schemes or cap and trade. Now, tax is inherently a national because it has to come from the national government as a stick. ETS, emissions trading schemes like in Europe and China, they're a bit more uh, politically fluid because there is this option to trade the emissions permits and to buy carbon offsets. So that kind of policy has more potential to be internationalized. Mm -hmm. So perhaps in the future, the European ETS will connect with the Chinese ETS and the North American ETS, wherever they exist. So there is scope there for a global price signal. However, once again, it is relatively incremental and it's always subject to the cap anyway what what government set as caps so we, we kind of left without that special global price that economists would like to see uh, and we we kind of handicapped okay well Delton, this is a great time to introduce the global carbon reward policy um 
also known as either the carbon coin or the carbon currency. Um, can you introduce us to that program and how that is different from a cap and trade or ETS? Sure. The, probably the best way to explain this, because this is a very technical question, uh, let's think of carrots and sticks. So carbon tax, cap and trade, they're inherently sticks to begin with. Subsidies are carrots. Subsidies that we know of include tax deductions and the Inflation Reduction Act and, or whatever. They are also coming from government through their fiscal budgets. Now, um, what I'm saying is that there is another kind of carrot that has not been discussed by economists and we haven't really looked at it. The new carrot is called a global carbon reward. And what's special about this carrot is that it's a carbon currency. It's not uh, just a subsidy based on US dollars or Aussie dollars or Hong Kong dollars. It, it's a currency for the world. And this currency would be centrally issued or cent centrally managed by an international organization. And unlike money that we're familiar with, this currency would not be a medium of exchange and it wouldn't have legal tender status. It's really a currency-like instrument that has economic value. So if you, if you offer it as a subsidy for mitigation, the project owners would like it because it's got value and they can use it to make a profit. Diving a little deeper into that, when we spoke before the show, you had mentioned that this would largely be run by the central bankers or uh, the reserve banks, uh, which each nation has, um, and that it might be linked to kind of a central bank digital currency um, or similar uh, application. Right. Well, let me clarify. There are different ways to manage such an idea, but the simplest and possibly the purest model would be to have a new international organization to manage and implement the policy, issue the carbon currency. The central banks, their role is to be the buyers of last resort for this carbon currency and to, in a coordinated way, to have all the major central banks being on standby to buy this carbon currency if the exchange rate is too low. And indeed, the policy aims to manage the exchange rate in, in such a way that will create a rising floor price. So the floor price is the lower bound value that's allowed. A public finance guarantee provided by central banks will defend, defend that floor price. And then the price or exchange rate can fluctuate above that simply based on supply and demand in the private sector. So this is quite a sophisticated concept. I'm not saying it's easy to understand, but if we have this finance guarantee by the central banks and they promise to create this rising floor, it's kind of like a stable coin, but better because you know how stable coins have a constant value, or at least they're supposed to. Imagine a stable coin with a rising value. Well, that's what we'd have with this carbon currency backed by central banks. Okay. Well, it sounds ambitious and it also requires coordination amongst central governments uh, around the world. Uh, how's that working so far? Well, we haven't even, <laughs> we haven't even um, tried to communicate this to governments, but if, I think, you know, looking at recent history, 
I think we've done pretty amazing things. We have the Paris Climate Agreement out of 2015. I think it was COP21, wasn't it? That's pretty amazing that the world could come together and agree on something like that. It was a voluntary international agreement. However, it lacks teeth. So the world is waking up to the fact that we don't have the scalable debt-free climate finance we need because a lot of the work to be done for climate mitigation won't necessarily make a profit. If it's expensive, how can we fund it with debt finance and loans? So in comes the carbon currency. It's debt-free, scalable. Uh, It'll be in demand by the private sector because of the rising floor. And if there's not enough private demand, the central banks can step in as buyers of last resort. And the idea is that we use this reward as a market policy to pick up uh, all the problems that the current system isn't very good at dealing with, such as decarbonizing the hard-to-abate sectors, you know, steel, concrete, fossil fuels, buildings, and importantly, uh, then this is incredibly important, to pay for carbon removal, greenhouse gas removal from the ambient atmosphere. Waves in the Finiverse, the podcast. Speaking to the people making waves in finance, fintech, crypto, Web3 and beyond. Now, Delton, how do we make sure the coin doesn't cause more damage than it cures? Because uh, clearly early um, investors in Bitcoin uh, were concerned about the or sorry, in uh, Ethereum, were worried about the proof of work status and the electricity consumed. Um, Some blockchains can be inefficient, but with proof of stake or uh, proof of space time, there are other options. Uh, So this is a blockchain based project. And how do we keep it from uh, how do we keep it green too? Mm, Good question. Well, the carbon currency, technically speaking, wouldn't be a crypto. It's not a crypto. Uh, How would we implement the currency? Well, um, if we used central bank digital currency technology, which is very similar, I guess, uh, does it use proof of work and does it produce a lot of pollution? Well, I think the answer is it might use proof of work, but it doesn't need all that hashing, all that computer power, because it would involve a consortium of computers, the identity of which is known. And so you don't have the same security problems as you do with a fully public currency like Bitcoin. Uh, Proof of work, uh, the question of the energy consumption really just falls away when you have a consortia of trusted institutions to manage the ledger. Will the carbon currency be a CBDC? It doesn't necessarily have to anyway to start with. It could be put on the rails that exist in commercial banking systems anyway. And then when CBDC technology is mature and functioning globally, uh, it would then be probably put into that system because it would be so much more efficient. Okay. Um, and you noted earlier uh, that this might require a, a third party or an international body. Are there any existing organizations that could take this on, whether it's the United Nations or SWIFT, which is connecting all the banks? Well, from a public perspective, from a global public good perspective, I think it should be an international organization created under the UN umbrella. That's my thinking. Others might disagree. 
There is an organization currently called the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a bunch of scientists who work on a volunteer basis. I kind of imagine a new organization, something like the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Risk. But the people who work for that could be volunteers or they could be government officials or hired, paid for, salaried staff. But they would be risk experts, scientists, engineers and economists. Um, By the way, the novel by Kim Stanley Robinson called The Ministry for the Future is that concept. The yeah, no, you've, uh, mm. yeah, yeah, I was just going to ask you because the um, novel does feature the carbon uh, coin uh, backed by reserve banks and uh, projects uh, in the novel, projects around the world are rapidly drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. It must have been uh, quite a good novel for you to read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I read it in the manuscript form for the author. He asked me to check it because he he adopted the policy as inspiration for his storyline. Kim Stanley Robinson, for people who don't know, he's a science fiction writer, and this novel is science fiction, but it's also called Cli-Fi, and it's set in the near future, maybe the next 10, 30 years into the future. I'm going to take a guess at Cli-Fi as climate fiction? You got it. Fantastic. I don't like acronyms on the show. (laughs) No, and in fact, Ministry uh, for the Future was um, Barack Obama's book of the year, uh, and it is doing very well in sales and uh, also in inspiration. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know what the sales figures are, but um, it, I, I met Stan recently, and he seems to be pretty happy with with the sales. Now, would we be able to, for this global carbon reward scheme, be able to start it out on, uh, say, uh, you know, the Solomon Islands or Vanuatu or, you know, uh, uh, a smaller nation, perhaps the Vatican City? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, I agree. We have a, a project plan, which is to raise money to demonstrate the policy, a proof of concept. We probably won't build a, uh, a carbon coin to start with because we're more interested in the impact of the policy on people's decision making. Uh, running a pilot carbon currency could be tricky. So we're more focused on how decision makers and businesses would respond to this new incentive. We want to speak to central bankers, economists, do economic modeling and speak to other stakeholders, including citizens, environmentalists, ecologists, and uh, energy experts. So we're looking at a project that is still likely a decade away. If uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'm laughing, but it's not a funny question. Um, we are in a crisis, and time is of the essence, because if we don't fund clean energy quickly, the problem um, is, Walter, that we will lock ourselves into dirty infrastructure and dirty energy and a lot of this infrastructure will last a long time, you know, power plants and transmission lines, what have you. So we're going to lock ourselves into a dirty future. That means we really are in a time urgent situation to uh, quickly transition out of dirty energy systems and a dirty economy. So for that reason, I hope that people who are supporting us will give us the resources we need to speed things up. Yeah, no, and um, uh, clearly uh 
on our show, we have looked at a number of traditional finance solutions as well as decentralized finance. And always the central bankers seem to be right in the middle of everything where they're trying to uh, interconnect the uh, existing financial systems with tomorrow's financial systems. And they're trying to figure out how to make the plugs and the sockets all fit together. Yeah, I, I think they're doing a lot of retrofitting of their systems. They know they're inefficient and the blockchain and CBDCs have come along and um, there are projects under the Bank of International Settlements and other central banks, uh, central banks to look at new tech that's efficient. I was very interested to learn of your background as a hydrologist, as well as someone who has studied the Great Barrier Reef and the Coral Keys for years. Um, you're probably looking at another substance such as water that we don't seem to put the appropriate value on. Uh, you know, how do we how does your experience as a hydrologist kind of influence your thinking towards these carbon markets? Yeah, well, this is such a deep question, Walter. Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, water resources are quite special because, of course, we need water, but the hydrological cycle naturally is a circular economy. You know, people talk about circular economy, but think of the, the hydrological cycle. It is naturally circular. So you would think an intelligent species, Homo sapiens, would have figured out that we have to use water within the bounds of the hydrological cycle, but we don't. And what we do is we mine water, whether it's in rivers or lakes or groundwater, often till we deplete it or we pollute it. There are good examples of over-extraction of water in central United States and northern India and other countries where they're depleting their own water. And the farmers who are doing this, they know what they're doing. They know that their farming methods won't survive. They'll eventually run out of water and they'll have to adapt. But question, why do people do that? Why do we manage our uh, industries or agriculture unsustainably? And the answer is because we time discount. We, as a species, we value the present more than the future. And also people want to make a profit, uh, enough money to retire, build, buy a house or put their kids through school. Who knows? So... Uh, this is the inherent problem of human nature, time discounting. And this relates back to environment, the environmental problem, climate change as well, the economics of climate. And the, the theoretical work that I've been doing looks at this problem deeply. And I think I might have answers, but it's just too technical to explain here. Okay. Well, I'm going to, um, speaking of too technical to explain, I'm going to now give you a question auto-generated by um artificial intelligence. Uh, why is incentivizing people necessary for the carbon reward program to succeed? The answer is for cooperation, right? There's scientific evidence that shows that human beings, we cooperate more with each other in competitive games when we have a combination of carrot and stick incentives. So we have some sticks already, uh, but we don't have enough carrots. So if we bring in the global carrot, the global carbon reward, it'll allow us to cooperate more and we can have more sticks as well. And that's how we might trigger exponential societal change. And for those of our listeners who are in the finance industry or in Web3, what are some of the things they can do or think about to uh, mitigate their 
carbon emission or support an, an initiative like the global carbon reward system? Well, um, you know, this isn't an easy question to answer. I would like people who are listening to this to consider making a donation and uh, helping to form a Ministry for the Future Club, raise more support uh, through professional networks, and, uh, yeah, just be aware of what we're doing. And at worst, start a book club, buy a Ministry for the Future, and have a rocking good conversation. Exactly. Tracks in the Finiverse. Now, Delton, we like to end each uh, show with a segment we call Tracks in the Finiverse. So if you were going to have some music that would motivate people to get involved in the global carbon reward scheme, what would that song be? I like the Rolling Stones. So money. Money. That's what I want. Okay. Dr. Dalton Chen, thank you so much for coming in to Waves in the Finiverse and introducing us to the Global Carbon Reward Scheme. It's been brilliant, and we really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, thank you for this opportunity to speak to everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been Waves in the Finiverse. Why not hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode? If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, then please leave us a review and a five-star rating. Thanks for listening.